Hello, and welcome to another episode of Such a Nightmare, Conversations About Horror. I am delighted to be Catherine Troyer, but I'm even more delighted to be joined by the only Anthony Tresca that anyone needs to know. Wow, that is some... That, the, the glowing recommendation for yeah. me. Yeah, I figured today, let's go, let's go big or let's go home. <laughs> well, I, I'm excited to be here, excited to be with you as well, so... Uh, Looking forward to this. This is a podcast that more or less evolved out of uh, Anthony and my desire to talk to each other about horror. But what we try to do is uh, have thoughtful discussions about that fine line between the horrific and the horrible. And each episode, we look at a specific horror text that is, for better or worse, giving us nightmares. And this week, we are super delighted for you to join us for our discussion of 2020's Freaky. I was a little worried that I was going to have to contradict you because you started to say we are super delighted and I thought you were going to say we're super delighted to talk about Freaky and I was like, are we though? But then you said we're super delighted to have you join us. So so it worked out okay because I don't think I can use the word delightful um, in any conversation that I'm having about Freaky other than in conversations where I'm saying I'm delighted about X, also I happen to watch the film Freaky. So... A glowing recommendation for me, a not glowing recommendation for the film we're discussing this week. <laughs> 100%. Something had to be glowing, and it definitely wasn't going to be my feelings about this film. Um, and some of that is, is my fault, because I originally was thinking that I I wasn't going to have high expectations about this film. Because we've talked about this before, that Blumhouse, and I liked how you articulated it the other day when you and I were just talking about talking about this episode you said something about like how Blumhouse can take like the the they can make these incredible risks right because they're because any payoff is is more than than no payoff for a lot of the time yeah I mean they the Blumhouse's whole release strategy is really just and per, Blumhouse's whole production model is basically housed on like producing the cheapest film possible so that any amount of money that it makes is a win. Yeah, I mean, so you can take however many risks you want within this formula, which is why, like, Blumhouse is responsible for quite a few really interesting, really risky projects, but it also means that you just produce a lot of cheap garbage, too. Um, yeah, I mean, we can't <laughs> ignore that that they did get out, right? We can't ignore that that's them, but we also can't ignore that... I'm trying to think of other of other films, uh, the 2019... Teen Black Christmas, right? Is them? It is them. Yeah, that's right. So, which which we've also talked about was was a risk that kind of failed. So, yeah, I mean, and honestly, that's a sound um, principle to operate in on in terms of a business model, and also it's kind of a nice framework as a as a filmmaker creator to know that this company is willing to take a risk on you and to not say you're not worth the financial. Um, risk, but it does mean that there's a lot of less than stellar quality works that are released. So with that said, I originally wasn't going to go into this film with very high expectations, but then I heard from a couple of, of friends that like that that it was moderately you know better than they thought it would be, or that it was kind of fun. And so I think I accidentally re reintensified my expectations for this film, which was a silly thing on my part. So I'll take the blame for that. 
but I can't take the blame for 99% of the problem, which is 100% on Freaky. Yeah, so I don't think I had nearly as strong of a reaction uh, to this film as you did. I I went in, oh, but then again, how much is that to but how much is that to be uh, attributed to expectation setting? Because I watched the film after you told me how much you disliked it. So, I mean, right. I, I, I was going in with, like, okay, this is probably not going to be the best. Uh, and it wasn't the worst, is my response. <laughs> yeah, but, you know, I think I've reached the point where mediocrity is more offensive to me than something being the worst that's an now that is an interesting thought i think i i think i am inclined to agree with you and i feel like this film was a study in mediocrity all right so we can't i think we need to figure out i don't know how to get (laughs) to the main conversation Yeah, I realize that that statement sounds like the end conversation. Yeah, complete but I was close. like, I think maybe we should circle back to that. Maybe it's, we should. <laughs> so I, I think, though, that we can keep going. Yeah, I, I think this one is going to be a good one to just approach from, like, start to finish. Starting off, let's start with the premise. I, I adore Freaky Friday texts, right? Like, um, yeah. you know, whether we're doing Haley Mills or... Or Lindsay Lohan, or or you know some variation on that theme, which of course there's lots of them. I mean, they're fun. They're always the body swapping story, be it gendered or uh, generational, or in this case, killer victim. I mean, they're they're fun, and it's a clever premise to think that you know on something that that hinges on this word Friday, and then we have a, a genre that's all about the importance of Friday, right? Like to. Like, somebody had their thinking camp on when they came up with this idea. And that person is Christopher Landon, who is both the director and one of the co-writers on this film. He talked about how uh, his vision for this film was basically a mashup of Freaky Friday and Friday the 13th. Uh, I mean, so, I mean, it's a it's a match made in heaven, I would say. It's a really interesting idea to take the, botter, the body swapping genre, but add, just add a little bit of slash and yes and we have both talked about at length um that we're big fans of horror comedy and for better or worse and and for me it's probably worse um you know it does have vince vaughn in it so so it has a big name associated to it i'm not personally there's something and you know i say this knowing full well that the vince vaughn could not care less about my thoughts about him but there's something about him that i don't always resonate with um i think it's because one of the early films that left a real impression on me that i saw with him was the the remake of of psycho uh gus van sant psycho uh-huh. and first off i'm such a fan of anthony perkins in, in the role um of norman bates that i it's hard for me to think of anyone else in that role but he's but vaughn also just plays that character of Bates so gross, which admittedly the character is is a creeper. Um, that it's it's like hard for me to think of him as anyone other than that voyeur who keeps his mommy uh, in the cellar. Although I mean, arguably that would that would be a point in this movie's favor, right? Right. Since you're you're already uh you're already prone to feeling a sense of disgust when you look at Vince Vaughn's body. I mean, and that's I mean, something that's that true. this film asks you to do repeatedly. That is true. But actually, I have a problem with that. So that whole, like, the film encouraging us to view uh, the killer as, as 
the other body. So so we'll save that for when we they have the body swap. But I do want to say, you know, Vince Vaughn, I think, actually does a pretty good job. Um, I think a lot of the comedic moments that I was actually willing to smile at um, were were with Vince Vaughn um, and yeah. his delivery. Uh, Vince Vaughn was okay in this movie. Uh, unfortunately, it's not original territory to just do the whole body swap trope. And even to do this exact same type of body swap trope is something that is very, I mean, it's in the cultural conscious right now because of, and I hate to, I, I'm gonna, I feel silly making this reference, but I think it's true, uh, Jack Black's performance in Jumanji, where he does yes. the exact same shtick. He is a, it's a, a very young, high school age, blonde girl uh, who is then put in the body of an older aging kind of overweight white man and you do this whole swap and jack black i mean he did a really excellent job in that film i mean i think the the um the first of the two new jumanjis was actually rather delightful in large part because of jack black yeah so i mean we've seen this the body swap genre is not new so you need to do something new with it and vince vaughn is playing a not a very unoriginal swap with that way, yes. as I've already talked about, and I just don't think he does nearly as good a job with it as Jack Black. Jack Black seems no. to have a better. I think personally, it's just because Jack Black is a superior actor to Vince Vaughn. I uh, would agree with that, and I think that's really honestly. I think that's kind of a lot of what this movie felt like. It's just like I could think of a lot of other people who could have done this better than them. Yes. So I think this is a good way to get into the main into the rest of the film then. Yeah, so starting with like the actual the that first sequence, you know, I mean, it's this this we've talked about this idea of like the paint by numbers um slasher film and this was very explicitly paint by numbers, but it was doing so because it was horror comedy. And I didn't mind that that opening sequence. In fact, I thought that opening sequence had some delightful kills. Um, it set up the, the sort of pacing and the timing of the comedy. Like it, it made a lot of promises, I feel like. Um, promises that ultimately it wasn't able to to keep. Um, but, but I liked that first 10 minutes. In fact, the whole time though, I was thinking, I was like, I sure hope Anthony will like this because I know he's not just a, a big fan of these like, shtick slasher killing scenes and if this film is going to be like this opening um, I'm not sure Anthony's going to like it but it turns out the film wasn't like the opening and I'm the one who didn't like it so you know that's yeah, I, I, the cookie crumbles. I agree with you I really did like the opening I when I was watching it I was like oh perhaps this film isn't going to be as bad as you described it to me because uh, that I think that it, you're exactly right it's the place in which every element is working the best throughout the entire film. I think that the acting from those four actors is sharper than anything else in the film. I think that the direction is a lot more precise than anything else. And specifically, I think the script, the scripting of that opening scene, the tightness, the minimal use of dialogue, there was a lot of showing not t and not just telling. Uh, and I thought that was gonna carry over. Unfortunately, as we've already been alluding to, once that first 10 minutes is over and we go to the next day, uh, what was it, Thursday the 12th? Th yeah, thir we go to Thursday the 12th, the whole movie kind of changes. And I think one of the things that opening sequence did lovely that, that I would have appreciated carrying on is, as you said, nothing in this film was original, but that first 10 minutes was like, yeah, we know that. We're just going to either explicitly rip stuff off or 
and I think they do this at various moments, pay homage, right? So that scene when Ryler uh, gets stabbed uh, and then the parents came in, that was very Scream-esque to me, right? With the opening sequence of Casey um, by Drew Barrymore, right? And the parents discovering her when they come home at this timely moment. So there was so much about that first 10 minutes that showed an awareness of the genre that was really delightful for a horror comedy. Um, but then it, it kind of got caught in itself because I think it forgot to be quite so self-aware. Um, and, and that was where the, I think, golden magic of the Freaky Friday, Friday the 13th could have happened. Yeah, I think it was, it, it, in order to be a mashup of Freaky Friday and Friday the 13th, I, I think you also needed to include a little more scream, as you're saying. Because you're, you're exactly right. The, once we get out of those, that first 10 minutes and we move into the next day with the rest of the characters, we're presented with characters who are vastly unaware of the situation that they are in, which is in stark contrast to the explicit self-awareness of the first 10 minutes. And I think that right there, once once that break happens, you lose a lot of trust. I, I, I lost a lot of trust in the film uh, as an audience member because I'm like, well, it's clear you just are not that tone that you took you took 10 minutes to establish is gone. And once you lose that momentum and you lose that trust, it's really hard to get it back from an audience. It really is. And I I think that compounding that was just some real real issues with scripting and with casting um so that, you know, for example, let let's let's talk about the the three primary friends so we have our main lead whose name the character's name is millie millie thank you played by katherine newton okay and katherine newton i liked her in supernatural so i had to figure out what i'd seen her in so i imbd'd her um and i liked her character in supernatural i thought she did a good job so i i don't know if it then is um having a a starring role or if it was the script or a combination of all of the above, but I felt that she fell a little flat in terms of affect. I think the performance was best when she was, and, and this is how, this is gonna sound horrible, but um, when she was silent, uh, when she was when the character had just become, you know, that um, they just had the body swap right, and I and uh, you know the so the killers in the body of of Melly and like figuring things out and it's I thought that was the best performance of hers not because she was silent but because she got to be a physical actor in that moment um but there was so much about the dialogue that she had that was just so unfortunate that that actress didn't have a chance to be a good character and certainly was not able to be a very compelling villain outside which is I mean a real problem if you're going to if, if the crutch of the body swap uh, film that you're devising in which uh, a villain and victim swap. If your villain is not able to adequate, adequately be villainous inside the swap, well, then you've just done a body swap for no reason and you've made it ineffective. Your, your film doesn't work. And I thought the, the idea that, like, somebody who is or has been as big um, uh, physically of a figure as as he would have been when he was in uh, the the male body, right? I, I liked the idea that like this realization that that so much of of what privileges certain groups of people to be perpetrators of abuse is their size um, and is their their strength. And there was like a lot of moments where you know um, 
he would say while in Millie's body, like, you know, um, this body's so weak, I can't help it. You know, I don't like it. I thought that was clever, but it wasn't, it was not played up enough, right? It was, it was just kind of like an excuse to explain why the, the kill count wasn't higher. Yeah. I, yeah, I would agree. Except also, again, it's just a lack of commitment to it because sometimes it wasn't a problem at all. Yeah. For, for the butcher in, in Millie's body. Sometimes the butcher was like, you know, arguably even more effective than he was inside the, yeah. his yeah. other body because sometimes they just like seem to forget the rules of this new body that they put them in that they clearly, as you say, sometimes acknowledge. But then other times, uh, like basically, uh, once once she escapes, in the third act, they seem to just be like, "It's fine. Millie can do whatever. Mill, and Mill, uh, the butcher in Millie's body can just do whatever now." Yeah, yeah. They're back to full power. Yes, I think you're absolutely correct that it was not consistent. And now, I mean, you could say that maybe that's because they've learned how to be in this body now. But if that is true, we never saw the learning. We were not really we were no. not privy to this. And we're led to believe that we see most of the events that happen in this 24-hour period. So any learning that happened would, I guess, just have to have fallen outside of that, like in the walking and driving to places, which, you know what, I don't buy that. No, I don't either. And I think think what you just said really, like, hits the nail on the head in terms of, of where I struggle with this film across the board. And it was, it was like, they kept thinking that if they made a comment or included an element that that would be sufficient to create interesting unique characters um interesting unique situations but the truth of the matter was is that it was it felt formulaic you can't formulaically think outside the box right like but that's what it felt like it was trying to do it felt like it was saying okay we have to break outside of the the box of the typical slasher film well, let's have a diversified cast. But then it was just like, okay, well, we need to have a gay, sassy best friend. Check. We need to have a um, smart, wise, black female character. Sidekick. Check. Instead of saying, what if our our final girl was not white and blonde? Right? Like, instead of, instead of actually going there and thinking outside the box. Um, or, like, what if she was queer? I mean, there were so many things I could have done. And instead of doing any of that, it was like they just kept trying to think if we just check the boxes, we can make a film that's original. But it's like we don't have a villain who's intriguing, as you said. We don't have a um, final girl who's intriguing. And then we just have a whole bunch of characters that are representations of diversity rather than actually being diversity. Yeah, I think a lot of what you're saying is really true. Uh, how, However, it is really interesting. I, I just got done watching a bunch of interviews and listening to podcasts with Christopher Landon talk about this film and discuss it. One of the elements that was constantly brought up in the interviews surrounding this film was the queerness that was present in the film. That through... Obviously, as you were saying, the literal just inclusion of of a gay character uh, and the body swap element itself. Uh, They were were talking just about that, about uh, the queerness that is present in uh, a a body swap, like with male, female. 
So, yeah, I, I mean, I don't agree. I, yeah, I, obviously, so, I don't agree with the, the statement I've just said. This is just, it, yeah, it, Chris, this is how they describe the queerness in the film. Yet their description of the queerness does not seem to actually adequately match the queerness that is present in the film. Right. Yeah, it's, you know, we we had a similar discussion, actually, in, in our discussion of, of Nightmare on Elm Street 2, where we talked about the fact that the film is queer, almost despite the fact that on the surface it's a it's a heteronormative heterosexual text and i would argue that the the opposite then is true for freaky that despite the fact that on paper it reads very queerly um in reality the film felt very traditional um and and not again tradition is an important part of of slashers and it's something often used in horror comedy but it can't be done while also thinking that you're not being traditional. You either have to say, we're just going to have a traditional presentation of things, or you have to say, we're breaking out of this box, but you don't get to pretend to do both. Yeah, because I think it just led to really lazy uh, perpetuations of stereotypes rather than any significant analyses. I mean, our introduction to the gay friend in this film is introduction via, uh, he makes a joke about like raping a straight person. Uh, yeah, and, and that is, I mean, this that's a constant myth that surrounds gay men is that they're very predatory. Uh, and in the first scene with this gay character, they immediately feed into that. And then they show it, they cut back to that scene at the end of the film where he's like, not now, I can't do this right now. Not implying that he wouldn't do it, he wouldn't have done yeah. it later, but implying that because of the, the murderous nature present in the scene that he didn't have time to engage in it right now. Making you wonder, was that initial comment just done so that we could have this super long payoff, right, at the end that wasn't even that much of a payoff? Um, or, or was the there an attempt to have this sort of insightful conversation about about what it's like to be to be queer in this small town and I cannot for the life of me feel like it was the latter it just feels like they put it in so that at the end they could have a joke about you know not right now Billy or whatever his name was and that's that's frankly like you said it's it's laziness but again it is laziness masquerading as cleverness and that I cannot abide yeah and even I mean the any type of queerness that is present within the body swap itself I think is consistently undermined due to the fact that the characters seem to adamantly hate everything about the about the other sex and they yes. don't really seem to learn anything about it no there's one moment where the butcher realizes that uh, in millie's body he will be seen as a as a victim so he can like you know so he screams and says you know um look the the butcher the butcher but there that what would have been interesting is if we would have seen, I don't know how this would have been accomplished, but if we would have seen the butcher much more explicitly um, using elements of being the victim to, to perpetuate crime. And there is that brief moment where, as Millie, you know, tries to, like, lures people back to the, to have sex, but then it becomes like a gang rape scene almost. Like it was yeah. just so so weird and so foreign. And and I had a problem with the fact that that the characterization of the butcher. So obviously Vince Vaughn is is a big guy, right? Um, he's tall and he's broad. Um, but but the amount of times that the film needed to iterate this idea that part of what makes him a monster is not just that he kills people, although yeah, hell, heck, he does. But it's but he's icky looking. He's so gross. 
He's smelly and he has bad teeth. And again, we're past that, I feel like, or we should be past that as that's how we code monsters, right? As that which is contains and presents itself in a body that is is not normal. I just, I had a problem with that. Yeah, I mean, it really gets back to, it's very akin to this idea of just like the monster is the grotesque. And that is a very, I mean, that is a very, if, if the film is as as it seems to su- want to suggest uh, a more progressive examination critique of this, then why do you have a character who is the embodiment of a grotesque monster as your as your victim, who you continually, uh, bel- ironically, belittle, uh, even though Vince <laughs> Vaughn is quite quite big, yeah. but you constantly are doing that. It just doesn't seem to. Again, it just doesn't. It's two diff- vastly different ways to go about forcefully shoved together. And I think another instance where the film on paper reads very queer, but but very does so extremely problematically in practice, uh, is the scene where the the significant other, the love interest for Millie, and Millie in the butcher's body are sitting in the back seat of the car together. Mm-hmm. I had I had an intense problem with that scene. For, for several reasons. One, I actually thought that that love interest was a terrible character. So up until pretty much right before that scene, right? Never once does he stand up for her. There are multiple times that he sees faculty and or his, his sports team members, um, not just like gently mocking, but we're talking like bullying her. And, and he just, like, stands there. He never once is he like, dude, that's not okay. He just stands there. And then the only thing he does that's, like, roman- potentially romantic is that he sets her alarm early. I, it, okay. But regardless of the <laughs> fact that I think that he's just a terrible character and not worthy of being uh, a romantic interest, that scene is really problematic for two reasons. One, it's not... It doesn't match the character. A character that has been as um, like unwilling to bend and unwilling to stick up for someone and whatever is not going to be, in terms of identity, someone that feels comfortable with loving someone regardless or independent of their body. And I think that that, that might seem like a silly thing to make fun of, but it, it makes fun of uh, you know how I think a lot of people are, are beginning to understand uh, attraction right and that is is that it it can and might be independent of one's gender uh, or of one's body and but it was done so flippantly in this film which brings me to my second problem is that how are we supposed to read that scene i think we're supposed to read it through the lens of comedy oh ha 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 isn't it so funny that he's willing to look past millie's appearance or past millie's current gender um to to engage uh, with her, and and that's not that's not funny. And and really, I mean, we can just I think we can say it. It's really look past the genitals because so so much yes. of this film's depiction that I think inherently makes it really kind of anti queer is this obsession with this with genitals throughout the film. Yes, and that that as being like a huge defining feature uh, and. That scene in particular, I think, really illuminates what the film really has to say and its its queerness, or as we're saying, the lack thereof, because Millie is, it's Millie, the one who is actually in the other body, who is experiencing this, this sense of otherness. They are literally in another 
body, yes. they're so uncomfortable and disgusted and repelled by this that they won't allow it. And the fact that they won't allow it, but that he is pursuing it, right? For the first time, that the, the time he decides to articulate his physical attraction is when she is most uncomfortable in her physical body is just, there's it's just another slightly rapey feeling scene. Like, there's just so much about this. There are no healthy relationships in this film. Not a single one. And I would argue that Millie and her friends don't have a very healthy relationship because that's usually the case where the protagonist, you know, ends up, like, taking her film, you know, what's in the film, her sidekicks for granted. But certainly there's no healthy parental relationships. There's no healthy sibling relationships. Um, there's no health, healthy romantic relationships, teacher or student relationships, um, student to student, right? Like this is just a film that is about toxic relationships. However, it is a film that refuses to acknowledge that because it is an affirmative film. Yes. Which is yet another one of the many reasons, uh, uh, many of these contradictions that is present in the film that are two incredibly differing choices that force the film to go in one direction and the film says, no, we're just going to do both. We're going to present a world that is so terrible, full of bad authority figures, bad parents, bad friends, bad relationships, everything's bad, except it actually isn't. The only problem is this one literal, like this one bad apple killer who comes in and wrecks this whole town had they just stayed away we could have had homecoming as normal this year everything would have been great so it's this mixing of a disaffirmative disaffirmative characters setting situations with an ultimately affirmative worldview and ending yes and and what you just said is is the true heart of of the problem with this film right you cannot be simultaneously an affirmative and disaffirmative film. And there are films that manage to be read either way. I think Nightmare still works, um, Evil Dead, where you can read it as either affirmative or disaffirmative. You can't read it as both simultaneously, but you can read it either way because it's kind of a, a loose and messy film, right? Both of those. But but the truth is, is that there is the, the agenda of this film as a romantic well, it's a romantic comedy slash horror and, and the reality and this like need for this film to speak to the zeitgeist of us realizing that these, these depictions are no longer normal. And it's just, the result was not only disappointing, but I think it was actually, I think it set things back, right? Because now we have to like move beyond this film in terms of horror and say, okay, well, how can we now have yet another film in the genre that pretends to have diversity, that pretends to have these transgressive, progressive elements, but that at the end of the day is is as conventional and affirmative as it can get. Yeah, it ultimately just amounts to virtue signaling and a, affirmative gobbledygook. Uh, I mean, because it's, it's just like, look, we have, we're going to signal to you through oversimplifications and these... Uh, stereotypical representations of ca diverse characters, ideas, things, but then we're going to delude them so much with this affirmative uh, slant that we're going to force the film to have due to the structural genre tonal elements and the whole nature of it being a comedy. Uh, and it just doesn't work because ultimately what you're doing is seemingly making fun of these things that you're trying to uh, critique, examine, explore, force people to think about. I I just don't know. And that is frankly a problem.
a big problem, I would say. Yes. And <laughs> so we take what is, I think, a, I think let's even go bigger than big, right? Like a huge problem. And then there's just other things. Like, it's not a funny script. There were these really weird no. moments where the camera angle would, like, zoom in on a character when they said a line, right? And we've kind of been taught that that's usually when there's going to be a zinger. But then they would just say, and I don't even remember any of them because they were so anti-zingers, but they'd be like, and that's what I'm talking about. And I'm like, what? That's that's the zinger? that Like, you're going to zoom in on someone for this moment of dialogue and it's not even going to make sense? In fact, I wrote this down so I could say it. The only time I laughed over a line of dialogue, and it wasn't even spoken dialogue, was when they're in the mini haunted golf club or golf um, game, and there's uh-huh. uh, on the wall the Grim Reaper, and he says, I'll tee you in hell. <laughs> okay, <laughs> that makes me laugh. That, was, But I think that was, that's more of a, uh, a production designer element, isn't it? Yeah. Which I, I do want to quickly add, uh, the production design on this film was quite good. A lot of the locations where I watched a lot of some behind-the-scenes things, they used a lot of real locations, and it shows. I think it's... The film yeah. looks pretty good, actually. I think the film looks good. I think that the film achieves something that I really appreciate with slashers, and that is that most slasher films take um, very recognizable locations and show us that how maze-like they can become, right? Like, even though it's a it's a warehouse, right, and, and that's not a, a location that one just usually wanders into, particularly an abandoned one, right? Like, we're familiar with, like, urban settings, we're familiar with schools, with shopping malls, or, um, and, and so there were a lot of moments that, yeah, I think the, the film did a really good job of, of having a, what I assume is just a, a medium budget, but really making it look high quality in terms of, I felt the town, like, I understood the town, the town was a character. Yeah, yeah. I agree. So that, that element was pretty good. Uh, however, again, as you were saying, if the best writing comes from the production design that probably means the script's not very good and i would i would ultimately agree because again a lot of these problems that we're saying are, don't arise from the performances themselves they don't arise from the even the literal direction or uh any of the production things it all comes down to the muddiness of the writing the script has the script tries to say so much but ultimately comes up and does it does say a lot of things but ultimately it doesn't say a lot about any of them and not just the muddiness but the unoriginality um the drunken mother since 1984 and certainly before it but since 1984 with nightmare on elm street we have had the drunken mother figure in horror right like that that idea of how can we represent a broken family? Ah, good. Let's let's make it so that it's not a mother and father team, and let's have the mother be not fulfilling her motherly duties by drinking. Ah, good. Thus endeth what a broken family looks like. That was really. It's just it's it's unoriginal and it's, it's frankly a little lazy, um, and and I think that up through the very end, right where we have this quote, like magical moment where Millie triumphs over the evil and everyone's impressed and you know now the mom's gonna stop drinking and the sister's gonna be home a little bit more that none of that worked right and none of it was as inspiring or as interesting as they thought it was going to be or hoped it would be because none of it felt original or authentic to the characters and world they had created yeah and well, I it just because it just doesn't feel earned no so I'm going to go back to the statement that almost ended the podcast episode before it even began. And that is, is that 
I think that I would rather see something that is absolutely terrible, but gosh darn it, they had a good time, or it is absolutely terrible, but gosh darn it, they took some incredible risks, than mediocrity. I think mediocrity is the biggest danger that a conservative affirmative agenda, but I think those two things, both of which this film has, are the biggest threat to horror. Yeah. It has nothing to say and doesn't know how to say it, and that makes for an ultimately just like meh film because despite how some of the other elements being good and not or at least being really serviceable uh because it doesn't really have because of that one problem uh it doesn't work and and i'm gonna say that this film is just meh right like i'm not i'm not gonna make this film into a bigger um villain in the narrative than it needs to be but i i think meh becomes a very slippery slope and and there's an insidiousness to to this idea that we can just keep producing affirmative mediocre texts um that i think has has real potential to to destroy what the jordan peels the ari asters the jennifer kent's the bong joon ho's are are showing us horror can do so blumhouse you've clearly shown that you're willing to give money to creative projects that take a lot of risks. So I would encourage you to, in the future, keep doing that, but maybe just pick a, pick a little better projects or take time to refine this. Because again, I, I, think, I think that this idea, this had a lot of potential. It just unfortunately was squandered. Thank you so much for joining us uh, for our uh, not so, uh delightful uh, or being delighted by a conversation on freaky we just freaked uh, out for like 30 minutes we did we did uh but we would love to hear your thoughts about this film because i i think that we made some really bold claims here uh so be sure to share your thoughts with us uh, on our social media and we will also have a uh, spooky scraps on this episode, which is going to be... Uh, it's going to be an original tr treatment of a crossover of between Freaky and Happy Death Day. In the meantime, we encourage you to... Share this podcast with your friends. At wherever you get your podcasts from, be sure to give us likes, comment, uh leave some feedback if you're on youtube just go down to the comment section directly if you disagree with us great we'd love to hear it down below and we are kind of ish active on social media so be sure to check us out there thank you so very much have a great day